Morning, Church. Now hear a reading from Genesis 34. Now Dinah, Leah's daughter, whom she bore to Jacob, went to meet the young women of the land. When Shechem, son of Hamor, the Hittite, who ruled that area, saw her, he grabbed her, forced himself on her, and sexually assaulted her. Then he became very attracted to Dinah, Jacob's daughter. He fell in love with the young woman and spoke romantically to her. Shechem said to his father, Hamor, Acquire this young girl as my wife. When Jacob heard that Shechem had violated his daughter Dinah, his sons were with the livestock in the field. So Jacob remained silent until they came in. Then Shechem's father, Hamor, went to speak with Jacob about Dinah. Now Jacob's sons had come in from the field when they heard the news. They were offended and very angry because Shechem had disgraced Israel by sexually assaulting Jacob's daughter, a crime that should not be committed. But Hamor made this appeal to them. My son Shechem is in love with your daughter. Please give her to him as his wife. Intermarry with us. Let us marry your daughters and take our daughters as wives for yourselves. You may live among us and the land will be open to you. Live in it, travel freely in it, and acquire property in it. Then Shechem said to Dinah, to Dinah's father and brothers, Let me find favor in your sight, and whatever you require of me, I'll give. You can make the bride price and the gift I must bring very expensive, and I'll give whatever you ask of me. Just give me the young woman as my wife. Jacob's sons answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully when they spoke, because Shechem had violated their sister Dinah. They said to them, We cannot give our sister to a man who is not circumcised, for it would be a disgrace to us. We will give you our consent on this one condition. You must become like us, circumcising all your males. Then we will give you our daughters to marry, and we will take your daughters as wives for ourselves, and we will live among you and become one people. But if you do not agree to our terms by being circumcised, then we will take our sister and depart. Their offer pleased Hamor and his son Shechem. The young man did not delay in doing what they asked because he wanted Jacob's daughter Dinah badly. Now he was more important than anyone in his father's household. So Hamor and his son Shechem went to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of their city. These men are at peace with us, so let, us live, let them live in the land and travel freely in it, for the land is wide enough for them. We will take their daughters for wives and we will give them our daughters to marry. Only on this one condition will these men consent to live with us and become one people. They determined that every male among us be circumcised just as they are circumcised. If we do so, won't their livestock, their property, and all their animals become ours? So let's consent to their demand so they will live among us. All the men who assembled at the city gates agreed with Hamor and his son Shechem. Every male who assembled at the city gate was circumcised. In three days, when they were still in pain, two of Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, each took his sword and went to the unsuspecting city and slaughtered every male. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword, took Dinah from Shechem's house, and left. Jacob's sons killed them and looted the city because their sister had been violated. They took their flocks, herds, and donkeys, as well as everything in the city and the surrounding fields. They captured, as, they captured as plunder all their wealth, all their little ones, and their wives, including everything in their houses. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have brought ruin on me by making me a foul odor among the inhabitants of the land, among the Canaanites and the Perizzites. 
I am few in number. They will join forces against me and attack me. Both me and my family will be destroyed. But Simeon and Levi replied, Should he treat our sister like a common prostitute? This is the word of the Lord. Lord, in this moment of silence, speak to us about your word. Maybe one of the reasons this story is so miserable is because, if we're honest, we can identify as much with Shechem, who does a terrible thing and then tries to justify it and cover it up, as we can with others in this story. The truth is we cannot escape the mess of this story. And neither could the people of Israel in the wilderness who, who first had to make sense of it. You know, may, think, think of the group of people, the first people who are hearing this story are the Israelites who have been delivered from Egypt. And based on which scholar you read, there's, there's somewhere between 100,000 and a million people who are wandering in the wilderness. They have no law of their own. They, they don't really have uh, sort of structures for their society. They've been slaves in Egypt all their lives. For seven generations, they've been slaves in Egypt. And here they are, pulled into the wilderness. And when you have a group of 100,000 people, much less a million people, you may have a couple days of like a honeymoon period, like, hey, we're in this together. But people are going to start doing bad things to each other. That's just the reality of it, right? And so they're, they're trying to make sense of how do we deal with the crimes that are happening among us? And then they're given this story that perhaps is all too relatable to them. For them, and for us, the question before us today is how do we respond when something so horrible takes place? How do we react to such a crime? How do we react to injustice? When injustice hits close to home, it is disorienting. By that I mean when something terrible happens to you, to someone you love, and you can't escape it, it is disorienting. Uh, in, in fact, people do not remain calm for a reason. You know, we, we've been taught by our kids' school to call it lizard brain. And lizard brain is when you stop functioning in your owl brain, where you're reasonable and you can think clearly and systematically, but you go to that just raw animalistic fight or flight response. And when something terrible happens and it disorients us, that's the response we have. We have fight or flight, and that's exactly what we see in this passage. We don't think about what's the right way to process this thing. Instead, it's just like, oh, react. And in this passage, we see that one of the characters flees from the injustice, and one fights it. It's Jacob who flees from it. Dinah's dad, his only daughter, it, it exposes Jacob yet again. Just, just recently in the story, he's been given a new name, Israel, one who wrestles and contends with God. He's supposed to be this new man walking in this new faith, right? That was supposed to be a great conversion. But, but in this chapter, we're back to using his old name because he's back to his old ways. He's paralyzed in the face of a horrifying crime. He, he only becomes upset at the end of the passage, when he thinks his sons have put him at risk. Otherwise, he does nothing. Nothing. How can he stand by and do nothing? 
how could he only become upset when, when he himself is at risk? Jacob treats what happens to Dinah really as if it's not his problem. Each, each scene that we've seen with Jacob, with a few exceptions, is kind of a new low. I think this might be the low point in the Jacob story. I'm not sure. He doesn't exactly run from it, but he freezes. And that's a form of flight. Do we do this? <laughs> Guys, I've already mentioned, we're, we're living with 24-7 global news. Depending on which feeds you follow, you have access to this kind of information, this kind of episode taking place all around us, all over the world and in our own backyards, right? It, it's constantly there. It invades our schools. It invades our churches. It invades businesses. It's everywhere. The stories of injustice follow us. And, and the news is traumatic. In fact, in the name of self-care, we often just have to tune it out, right? We just have to say, no more, no more. Flight is about self-preservation. Avoidance is about self-preservation. Every single problem that we face is so complex and so difficult that separating from it feels safer. Uh, several years ago, I heard Jason Jans, who founded Cross Purpose, this great ministry that walks with people really out of homelessness and into uh, sufficiency. He, he claimed that if every congregation in the United States simply took one homeless person under their, our wing and walked with them all the way out of homelessness, all the way to stability, that homelessness in America would be eradicated. That's what he claimed, based on the numbers. I don't know if that's true. I haven't tested his claim. But I think there's a reason we'll never know. Because that one person, the one person that you commit to to walk with, brings a universe of complexity and brokenness with them. Just like you. Just like you. And so we... Just do it in little bite-sized bits, and otherwise we avoid it. Frozen avoidance, friends, uh, I can speak to personally because it's, it's my go-to. It's my go-to uh, defense. I can change the channel. I can crack a joke. I can spend my time on trifles and never get to the hard work of justice. Once again, as I read Genesis, I discover that I am Jacob. Maybe you are too. <laughs> So that's one way to respond. We can flee. The other way to respond is we fight. We fight. Of course, Jacob's sons are the example here. Jacob is silent like Adam. He's passive in the face of evil. His sons, like Eve, grab hold of the fruit of knowledge of the knowledge of good and evil, and they take it for themselves. They rightly name Shechem's actions as evil and take matters into their own hands. The sons of Jacob, and especially Dinah's full-blood brothers, Simeon and Levi, they deceive the Shechemites into circumcising themselves, which renders them completely vulnerable, and then they execute them completely. They destroy the town. They take everything. The response of the brothers, the, the crime is horrible. The response of the brothers is totally disproportionate. 
is it? This week, as I was working on this, I, I sort of re-skimmed several books on my shelf uh, about justice. And I came across a story in one of them of this, uh, this girl who, uh, you know, grew up in a small town and decided to run away from home. As things went wrong, she found herself homeless in a big city, and she was caught up in uh, a dangerous situation. Uh, the police were called, and they came uh, to remove her. The two officers pulled up and took her in the car, and she thought she was safe. Instead of taking her to the appropriate services, they took her to a motel, and they took turns assaulting her. Then they dumped her back on the street. The story was told by the prosecutor who had to work this case. As I read that story, I thought, yeah, forcing these men to mutilate themselves and then executing them sounds just about right. Because these guys were in a position of power and they abused it with someone totally vulnerable. When someone has acted so wickedly, another tendency of ours when we don't flee, when we, when we want to fight, is to think that that person has waived all of their rights to be treated morally and ethically, right? Jacob's sons show no remorse in deceiving this village so that they can commit mass vindictive murder. These are the, the 12 tribes, the fathers of the 12 tribes. This continues and magnifies a troubling pattern that has happened throughout the chosen family in Genesis. Both Abraham, the great-grandfather, and, and Isaac, his son, and, and Jacob in multiple ways, all of them used deceit to get ahead. They deceived foreign kings when they thought they were at risk and they got rich. Jacob's whole life has been characterized by deception and it has led to all sorts of wealth. And here again, deception yields massive material wealth. In fact, if you're using the Bible as a guide for how to get rich, the way to do it is to commit fraud, to trick someone and get all their stuff. How will the Bible respond to that? We don't find out in this passage. In the midst of their deceit, you know what they do? They weaponize the covenant. We just baptized sweet little Mabel, right? And we marked her. We gave her a covenant mark. These guys took the covenant mark of circumcision and without any sort of theological meaning, without saying, hey, this means that we belong to God and we're his devoted people and this is how we need to live. No, they just, they just say, hey, we've done this. If you want to be part of us, you got to do this. And the men of Shechem, the, it's confusing. The guy's name is Shechem and the town is called Shechem because he's the most important guy in town, the story tells us. So anyway, the men of Shechem, they say, hey, I mean, that sounds uncomfortable, but small price to pay. We're going to take everything if we do this. But that, all right, we'll pay the cost. Do the thing to get the stuff. I uh, regularly, well, maybe, I don't know, a couple times a month, I get a call from uh, people I don't know. Usually it's a grandparent of a brand new baby. Now, the grandparent has no connection to the church. The parents have no connection to the church. The, therefore, the baby has no connection to the church. And they say, hey, my, my grandchild has just been born. Can I bring them in this Sunday so you can baptize them? 
And as the conversation goes on, I find that there's really no intention of ongoing relationship with the people of God. Obviously, they're cold calling a pastor they don't know, so they don't have a church that they're connected with either. You know, it's a, so what is it? What are they wanting in their minds? They're wanting the water to reap some type of benefits in the child's life without any of the rest of the stuff, without the, without the rest of the covenant. You know, we wouldn't have done this with Mabel if we didn't know Neil and Corbin, right? You see, what happens to us is we take the sign and we use it for our own gain. And that's what both the sons of Jacob do and the men of Shechem. And I think when we do this, when, when, when people do that with, with baptism, I, I think it's dangerous. I think it's spiritually dangerous. It may not be physically dangerous, but it's spiritually dangerous. It was certainly physically dangerous for the men of Shechem. Guys, when we enter the fight mode instead of flight, it's often because our honor has been so directly challenged that our only option left is to fight back. I have found this to be true in my own life. Several years ago, I was falsely accused of something terrible. And for months after that, I had fantasies as I would drive around town of getting in a physical fight with my accuser. I'm not a fighter. Um, the first time we tried to speak, I was shocked to myself. I didn't merely just defend myself or state the facts, but I counter accused. Anyone here who has been wronged, has endured someone in your care being wronged, may understand the impulse of the brothers in this story. When we finally feel the full impact of sin done against us, there's no amount of proportionate response that feels right. You want to go further because they've done much more than whatever the crime on the surface is. But would it bring satisfaction? I don't know what a proportionate response to the rape of their sister would possibly be. And I don't know that any of that would ever possibly bring satisfaction. But I don't know that their actions here brought satisfaction either. If you skip forward to the very end of Genesis, the elderly Jacob is blessing all of his sons before he dies. And he is still talking about this when he blesses Simeon and Levi. It's hung over them. It's cast a shadow over their lives for the rest of their lives. So the flight doesn't seem quite right. The fight doesn't seem quite right. What can be done in the face of injustice? There's one of the most important parts of this story is the part that's not there. No one in this story, when this terrible, disorienting thing happens, turns to God. No one. No one remembers God's promises. No one, no one thinks about that. I mean, think of, they, they don't have a, a, a complex, detailed theology, all right? They don't have generations upon generations of people thinking, you know, the, the full scriptures and people thinking about this. They only have a few scenes where God has shown up and told things to them about himself. But here's what he's told them. When he first called Abraham, he made him a promise about their relationships with the nations. He said, I will bless those who bless you, but the one who treats you lightly, I must curse so that all the families of the earth may receive blessing through you. 
Later with Isaac on the mountain, he recites it again. Because you have obeyed me, all the nations of the earth will pronounce blessings on one another using the name of your descendants. To Isaac later in chapter 26, the promise comes again. All the nations of the earth will pronounce blessing on one another using the name of your descendants. Isaac blesses his son Jacob. Of course, he thinks he's Esau, but that's beside the point. Saying, may peoples serve you and nations bow down to you. May those who curse you be cursed. And those who bless you, be blessed. When Jacob is on the run from Esau in chapter 28, God appears to him in a dream and says, your descendants will be like the dust of the earth and you will spread out. And so all the families of the earth may receive blessings through you and through your descendants. So what did they know about God? What had God repeated about himself over and over again? That he promised to bless those who bless them and curse those who dealt wrongly with them. That promise has direct bearing here, doesn't it? If they remembered it, if they remembered the one thing God has repeated about himself, they could turn to him and say, God, do your thing. Have Adam. Deal with these people. Do what you promised. Friends, what we know about God should affect the way we deal with these things. Unlike Jacob and his sons, the Israelites in the wilderness, they were enrolled in the school of God's justice. The, the large part of the, the story is them receiving the law, the, the book of, of Numbers and Leviticus and Deuteronomy, these uh, Exodus, these, these are mostly God describing how to deal with the mess. God giving them a process when, when someone steals from someone, when, when someone accidentally kills another guy's oxen, and, and, and all the rest. He's given them this process of justice. And so they're learning all of that. And then they're hearing this story and seeing what do people do when they don't have any process that's been given to them by God. Most importantly, they know God's name. I don't just mean the name Yahweh that he gave to Moses in, in Exodus chapter 3. I mean his full name that he gave to Moses later on after he delivered them from Egypt. Look, look at his full name. This is how he introduces himself to Moses and the people. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in loyal love and faithfulness, keeping loyal love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but he no, by no means leaves the guilty unpunished, responding to the transgression of fathers by dealing with children and children's children to the third and fourth generation. That's his name. It's very hard to write on a form. That's who he is. If we know this to be true about God, it, it begins to transform the way we, we respond to this broken world. From this and several other places, Gary Haugen, who's the founder of the International Justice Mission, uh, he draws four hugely important conclusions about the God of the Bible. If we internalize and stand on these conclusions, it shapes the way we respond to the horrific realities of day-to-day -day life. Here's the four things. Number one, God loves justice and hates injustice. Number two, God has compassion for those who suffer injustice everywhere around the world without distinction or favor. Haugen notes that compassion means he suffers with them. He draws near to the poor and feels their pain. Third, 
God judges and condemns those who perpetrate injustice. And fourth, God seeks active rescue for the victims of injustice. It's the cry of the prophets. It's the mission of Jesus. It's the call of God's people. But we have to let God get in between. You see, both Jacob and his sons wanted immediate justice. By immediate, I don't mean instant. I mean without a mediator. So how do we let God mediate? Well, it sounds simple, but first we have to just give it to him. I know that sounds so simple and trite and like Christian-y. We are Christians, so it should. Um, but I, I suggested a prayer that Jacob's sons could have prayed a minute ago, and it wasn't a nice prayer. God, deal with them. Do what you promised. Punish them. That's a, that's a hard prayer to pray. And yet the Bible has a whole collection of prayers just like that. Bible scholars call these the imprecatory psalms. Uh, to give... An unjust situation to God means we have to be totally real about it with him. And it's okay to bring our rage to him. One of the hardest examples is Psalm 58. It describes wicked people, wicked leaders especially, and then it prays like this. Oh God, break the teeth in their mouths. Smash the jawbones of the lions, O Lord. Let them disappear like water that flows away. Let them wither like grass. Let them be like a snail that melts away as it moves along. Let them be like stillborn babies that never see the sun. That's a biblical example of how to pray. Rage is an appropriate response for much of what we see in this world. It is when we bring it to him. Now, some of us are more inclined by personality or whatever, not to go to rage, but to just be so sad. And a third of the Psalms, so many of the prayers in the Bible are prayers of lament, where we just say, God, how long? This is terrible. Why? It doesn't feel like you're fulfilling your promises. You promised justice and this isn't it. Who else can we bring it to than the God who loves justice, who hates injustice, who has compassion on those who suffer? Who else can we bring it to? How else can we learn compassion to suffer with someone than to enter into the pain and anger and sadness of it? I think that's what Jacob and his sons could have done. But after we give it to him, what do we do? I'm here at the end of my sermon. And I haven't really answered that question. But we can make no mistake that God is calling his people to be involved. Just as the law directed the people how to respond to a murderer or an adulterer or a thief, God directs us how to respond to this world. But we have to follow as he leads us. I have to acknowledge that there is so much more to say, and I don't have time to say it here, about how we respond to injustice. So I, would, I just want to give two book recommendations right here. One, Gary Haugen, the founder of International Justice Mission, wrote a book called The Good News About Injustice. And if something is stirring in you today, get that book and read it. Tim Keller wrote a great book called Generous Justice that really empowers the church to keep learning. Here's what I can say, though. God consistently calls his people 
to be vulnerable for the sake of others, even for the sake of justice, to become a nation through whom God could bless the nations. Abram had to leave everything he knew, the safety of his home. Isaac had to be strapped to the altar. Jacob had to be sleeping in the dangerous wilderness, alone in the dark, or wrestling with a mysterious man and permanently wounded in order to become the fathers of a nation through whom God could bless the nations. And the Son of God had to empty himself of his equality with God. He had to take the vulnerable form of a poor servant, serving even to the point of death. In our story today, Dinah was raped. That's unjust every time. The men in town were unjustly murdered. Neither of these things happened by their own choice. Jesus was unjustly but willingly executed. His followers become agents of his justice when we take on vulnerability for the sake of this twisted world. So I want to close with one story to demonstrate what I mean. Some of you may know the names John and Gwen Haspels. Does anyone know those names? John and Gwen came to visit our church several years ago. Uh, for decades, they had served as missionaries in Ethiopia, working primarily between two really warring tribes that hated each other. And in these tribes, the norm in these communities was that if someone from the other tribe wronged anyone in my family or in my household or my community. If I was the, the family leader, sort of the chief male, it was my job to go and murder the chief male in that family. That's just the norm. That's how it worked. These communities did not have a word for forgiveness. They only had vindictive justice. So John and Gwen are working with them, and the message of Jesus is nonsense to them. For years, they're like, it just doesn't, doesn't make sense. Why? But then in 2014, as they were nearing really the end of their years there, John and Gwen were driving from one town to the next when a young man jumped out from behind a bush with an AK-47. And as they drove past, he fired a shot into the passenger window. The bullet hit Gwen in the jaw and caused her teeth to explode onto John's face, causing severe lacerations and permanently blinding him in one eye. Gwen especially endured dozens of reconstructive surgeries for the rest of their, you know, for, for years. Their Ethiopian friends pushed them to pursue justice. Pursue justice our style, make it right. Find this guy and punish him. But they refused. John and Gwen were the vulnerable ones, and they could demonstrate painful forgiveness. On the anniversary of the shooting, John went back. He had been here in the States having all kinds of surgeries, caring for Gwen. But he went back, and he found that the episode had sparked such a revival in that community that he got to participate in the baptism of over a 1,000 people. What happened? A horrible crime was committed against them, and they absorbed it vulnerably into themselves. And instead of seeking some sort of balancing of the scales, they gave it to God. They gave their bodies for the nations, because that's just what Jesus did for us.
Friends, on the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took the bread and when he had given thanks for it, he broke it, saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way after supper, he took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And every time we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death. He's taking all of the injustice of the world upon himself until he comes. And we're empowered, church, by his death and his resurrection to follow him. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that you didn't leave us in the place of Jacob and his sons and Dinah, not sure how to respond, wandering in the dark, lashing out and hiding at different times. And Lord, I am still so prone to do that. And so I pray, Lord, that you, as I come to this table, and as my brothers and sisters come to this table, that you would transform the way I think about this broken world that you would guide us, Lord, in little and big ways to take it upon ourselves, as Paul says, to complete in our bodies the sufferings of Christ, that the nations would be blessed. In Jesus' name, amen.